My mother's nickname for me was Miha, and no, we're not Latina. Miha is short for Miha Shefa, which is Yiddish for witch. Hello, and welcome to Personal Disclosures. I'm Nancy Beckett, and I'm your host. Eight people signed up for one of my humorous writing classes here in Chicago at the Second City Training Center, where I've taught for more than 15 years. They entertained the hell out of each other, bonded, and shared secrets they'd never told anyone. And now they're revealing their truth to you. These stories have so much meaning and quality because they are written. I mean, people are a huge pain in the ass, generally speaking, myself included, and they'll bore you to death if you let them. But in these episodes, what you'll discover is how interesting people actually are on paper. It'll surprise you, and you're going to want more. So please go to our website at personaldisclosures.com. See more of us. Tell us what you think, and disclose some of your own truth. Why don't you? Okay, so here's how it's going to go. After one person reads a personal disclosure, we're going to riff. We're going to cross talk. We're going to get. Crazy and funny, and contradict each other, and then we're going to move on. You're not going to know who's talking in these commentaries. That's okay. There's nothing you're going to miss. Just listen to the things that people say to one another as writers in a room reading together. And after a couple of episodes, you'll know who we are. This episode is portrait of a lady slash man. We have Julie Bashkin telling a story about her mom, and、mm, I'm gonna have to say it's it's really one of my favorites. And I wish that you can watch her performance on our website because the night she performed that at the Second City Showcase, it was just full that audience. Just full of people who knew her mother, and it, it was just, it gave me goosebumps. So here it is. It's a gift. Mama, my gendarme. My mother's nickname for me was Miha, and no, we're not Latina. Miha is short for Miha Shefa, which is Yiddish for witch. <laughs> and in some cases, this nickname was well deserved. Stop yapping, Miha. I have one more paragraph left of this chapter. She would say this in her raspy voice in between her coughs. My mama, Marina Bashkin, could weather any storm with a book, a tea, and a cigarette. She had a unique ability to block out whatever acute emergency or chronic misery she had going on: her cancer, my father's crazy, or his recuperation from head trauma, or my grandmother's frequent diabetes, kidney congested heart failure-related hospitalizations.、Ugh. She sat in a red fleece robe at the mock marble kitchen table, smoking one of her long, skinny mint cigarettes with her book. I dreaded when she would finish her reading session because I knew. Just like when she comes home from work and announces that Gendarme is here, she would go through a to-do list of chores and reading assignments, asking me what was and wasn't done. Gendarme is French for policeman, and though she did not speak French, she peppered her Russian with French words, <laughs> often words she didn't even know how to define, because in her classic Russian literature, 
That's what the aristocracy did. Mm-hmm. And though she was the only person in the world I feared, that fear was not enough to light fire under my ass and do what I was told. I always rebelled against her because I thought all of her requests were illogical. For example, if she told me to get up off the cold concrete floor because I would freeze my eggs and become barren, a Russian superstition, I responded with, Oh, yeah, Ma, and how many concrete sits does it take to become barren? Because if I've already killed my eggs, then I can keep sitting on the floor. And if I haven't yet killed my eggs, are concrete sits like lives in a video game? Am I saving them up for some later time? She'd ignore me and go back to her book, Tea and Cigarette. She drank the tea from a crystal goblet that sat in a metal teacup holder with an ornate metal handle, just like the aristocracy was served tea on Russian trains, she often said, alluding likely to one of the train scenes in Anna Karenina. But she didn't brew the tea in a samovar, because that would be kitschy, and when you took aristocratic props too far, you made them more peasant than blue blood. And while Jews were not blue blood, they also most certainly were not the proletariat. This was hammered into me over and over again until she was sure I knew how to classify both American kitsch as well as Russian. Having come home and reported, read, interrogated, on the decor of my school friends' homes, I was told quilts, potpourri baskets, embroidered pillows with sayings like home sweet home, and American flag-themed doormats were all country and belonged only in our vacation spot of Wisconsin Dells. (laughs) This is where we went to seek these things out like exotic local culture and to escape our congested urban jungle, read the Garden Community Apartment Complex that was only three stories high at the end of a grassy suburban cul-de-sac. Homes were to be sophisticated and simple, with classic modern decor, plain surfaces, metal and stone textures, monochromatic shades with pops of color preferably red. Unless you were on a budget and shopped at garage sales, then homes were to emulate to the best of your ability the classic modern style. This meant a fake marble kitchen table with metal chairs, no matter how uncomfortable they were, and a black dining room table that my mom splattered with white and silver paint a la Jackson Pollock. <laughs> Landscape portraits prominent in most Russian immigrants' homes as that was the inventory most often readily found in thrift stores, were to be avoided at all costs. And so art was a flea market purchased vase that was spray painted black with silver and red for a pop of color, of course. Pipe cleaners purchased at Michael's arranged like flowers and self-painted porcelain masks with purple ribbons also for a pop of color, hanging on the walls a la Parisian Art Deco from the 20s. Because, she said, my arms grew out of my ass, I was prohibited from self-expression and was only allowed to drag along to the stores and opine from the side on the art projects. I couldn't be trusted with a paintbrush, let alone a glue gun. As a klutz, I was liable to not only get it all over my hand-me-down, frummy Jewish art clothes, (laughs) but I might also staple my finger to the table, and we couldn't afford a new table, lest I forget we did not live in East Glenview. My mama did not read any language but Russian, but she nevertheless borrowed new French books every week, hoping I would pick up French by osmosis. When she tucked me in at night, Reed stormed into my room to shut the lights off to ensure I was asleep, 
I teased her by asking her to put a French book under my pillow every night so the French could seep in while I sleep. Her own stack was mostly Russian classics, the usual suspects, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chekhov, Turgenev, Russian contemporary high literature, this would be dissenters like Solzhenitsyn or Bulgakov, who were banned in the Soviet Union, and American and other world literature translated into Russian, like Dreiser, Fitzgerald, and Hemingway. She received some sage advice from another immigrant, that she could learn English by reading something easy, like a romance novel. This dreck is numbing my brain, she yelled, <laughs> ten pages into Daniel Steele. <laughs> dreck is Yiddish for shit. Before returning the book, she noticed it had been checked out more times in one year than any of the classics had been checked out ever. So she concluded Americans were illiterate fools. Every week we played tug-of-war with my library choices, a backpack full of what she considered trash. We stood in the middle of the library as she would remove Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley Twins and later Sweet Valley High books and proclaim they were children's soap operas. These would be replaced by Mark Twain and Victor Hugo. I would prepare a stack of questionable books and debate her. Judy Bloom, for example, was borderline. Are you there, God? Sounded like a serious title that passed. <laughs> the one mistake I made was going on a raw doll crusade. When in fifth grade, Mama dismissed Matilda and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as content that was below my maturity level, I described to her the great character development, the amazing descriptions of the scenes, the morality lessons. She particularly enjoyed the concept of the underdog sticking it to the bully in pursuit of justice. And that is when Mama decided that book reports were a fantastic idea, and I would give her a glimpse into American culture. She would get great insights and reference points that she could use to relate to some of her co-workers. And so, after an Oregon Trail report, and a little woman summary. She showed up at work asking her co-workers if they could share nostalgic stories about growing up riding in covered wagons across the country <laughs> while en route to the West searching for gold, and if they had to churn their own butter in their small Midwestern towns, and if it was at all similar to her communist pioneer summer camps. <laughs> Your book reports failed to mention I had the wrong century, let alone the wrong decade, she said. They looked at me like I'm an alien. So tomorrow I'll ask them about their Vietnam protests and if they went to Woodstock. <laughs> when not reading a book, Mama could be found still with her coffee or tea and cigarette with a phone cradled between her head and her raised shoulder. In the days when she was confined to the wall-mounted phone, she sat at the kitchen table. But her true promotion came when we bought a cordless and she could now sit at the couch. She had hundreds of numbers memorized in her head and spent hours on the phone either gossiping or doing deals, which entailed getting her hands on something rare that fall off the back of a truck. Gossip was often currency or a door opener for an introduction to someone who held possessions of this rare thing. Mama could procure anything she wanted or dreamed up because she had a network where she was only two phone calls away from anyone in the Russian community. This was evidenced by the standing-room-only occupancy at her funeral and the trunk full of consumed vodka bottles at her condolence meal. And this was not just in Chicago. Her reach extended to both coasts and even flyover cities with small but influential Jewish communities like Omaha and Cleveland. She was the business development executive corporations only dream of. Scrappy, she figured out what everyone needed and what they had to offer and orchestrated our bartering where goods flowed freely. 
When she decided that I needed to take French in junior high, a box full of French dictionaries and workbooks appeared magically within three days. She found someone who worked for a publishing company and connected them with someone else who was a limo driver whose kid needed French textbooks. Ergo, the publishing house worker got free rides to the airport, the limo driver's worker got free dictionaries and workbooks, and Mama got a box full of books for me as payment for being the middleman or broker. I insisted to Mama these would never see the light of day because nobody needed out-of-print books that were also different from the ones assigned for school. But she quickly dismissed me and said, Miha, you have no creativity. Not at all involved in my school activities, Mama's entire work of educating me via books almost went up in flames when I entered high school. In ninth grade, when Mama asked me what I was assigned in English class, I responded, Not much. We've been reading the same short story for months. The kids seem to be total delinquents. I've seen drug deals and all sorts of crazy stuff. So I just stick to myself and read my own books, and the teacher kind of ignores me and lets me do it. Well, go ask your friends what they're reading, she said. Go ask the Orientals. They're very studious. I learned my friends were reading Shakespeare in their honors classes. When they saw my schedule, they ascertained that I was in English studies, which is just one level above special ed. After having never been to school, because parent-teacher meetings and PTAs are for chumps, my mom marched me into the guidance counselor's office. The counselor and my teacher explained to her I was tracked into a lower track because of my ESL history and because I didn't have any formal education in grades 1 through 3, and I didn't seem to have much support at home evidenced by the fact that my parents had never once shown up to any conferences. My daughter read Camus. Do you even know Camus? She stormed in screaming. <laughs> she was convinced the guidance counselors were uneducated Daniel Steele reading fools. Scared of the crazy Russian lady yelling at them with her deep smoker's voice, the guidance counselor promptly elevated me to the regular track. Then they promised that if I received an A, I would be placed into honors at the beginning of the next year. You hear that, idiot? You better get that A or you're never going to go to college and you'll be riding the bus with poor people. And then you'll have plenty of time to read all sorts of dreck. She yelled this to me while she shoved me out of the door, slamming it and storming out of the school. Unfortunately, my mama lost her edge shortly after that when she started chemo for her stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. When I went to the hospital to visit her, she was laying in her bed with her eyes closed. She said to me, You must be happy the gendarme is not home to monitor what's going on in that closet of yours. She laid there with her eyes closed, but she could hear me in the chair next to her turning the pages of my book. Still with her eyes closed, she said, Miha, what are you reading? Heidegger, Ma. Are they teaching that in school now? No, Ma, it's for debate. She smiled, still with her eyes closed, and she nodded, and then the morphine kicked in. Well, I know that was tough, and I could see where that was going. So I appreciate all that went into writing that and the uh, emotion and, and reading it, too. I, I just love the portrait of your mother and her wheeler and dealer. And I wonder if you think, I think about my mother and how she would have made, like, a great business person. Do you think about your mom and if, like, circumstances were different 
would she be an investment banker today heading Lehman Brothers? I guess Lehman Brothers is no more. Heading <laughs> yeah, Goldman Sachs? Not Lehman Brothers. <laughs> I've thought about that, but in the Second City performance that I did, I explained a little bit about her psychology. She never wanted to work, and she never wanted me to work. And her one goal for me in life was to be a kept woman. And she thought the way to get to being a kept woman was to find a Jewish husband. And the way to get a Jewish husband was to impress him with my education. So I think had her motivation been different, she absolutely could have been an incredibly successful person. But she just wanted she just wanted to be taken care of and she just wanted to take care of people. And that might be because of the way that she grew up in the Soviet Union. She saw successful women like my grandmother was an academic and my father's stepmother ran a textile plant. And she didn't think that the reward for their success was anything great. She didn't want it. They were hardly earning enough money to make ends meet. She didn't see the point. I don't know. It, it just makes me so sad. And it's like she read to be back in Russia. When you read Turgenev or Chekhov, whatever it is, it's like it just puts you right back in that sensibility. That's where she she really had the best time as a, a at least as a younger girl. I think Julie was her greatest prize, but it, it it was like she she couldn't bear to have to live the way they were living. I loved that shit about throwing a dash of paint on everything. The art, the art right. projects are the best. She was so crafty. <laughs> yeah. The glue gun. Mm-hmm. My mother believed pop. every woman should have her own glue gun. <laughs> a pop of color. Hmm. I, I connected a lot with a lot of the little details. I think that one line when you said, when you come back from your friend's house, she wanted you to explain or describe their furniture. Mm-hmm. I, I remember my mom, I went to a friend's house just across the street from ours, and she's like, did you go in their basement? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, is it finished? <laughs> <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> is their basement finished? Because ours is finished, you know? And so just have, just seeing like that connection of just kind of keeping up with the Joneses, but kind of in their own interesting ways. And that even though I, I think in our eyes, Sometimes we don't necessarily value women who want to be a kept woman or, you know, they don't have professional aspirations. I do think, though, that your portrait of her, she she is very aspirational. And it seems like almost everything that, you know, all of her motivations, at least a lot of what she communicated to you was how aspirational she felt about certain things, about literature, about decor. Though she did desperately try to relate to the people at work. She just got the century wrong. You know, the covered wagons, all that shit. I yeah. thought it was hilarious. That's, that's really mm-hmm. funny. Especially when quilts and such are relegated to country homes. And mm-hmm. it all just mm-hmm. kind of, the centuries just kind of melt together. I was, so there was more Russian, yeah. I felt like she would have spoken Russian where she was like kicking her ass out of the college advisor's door. That would have all been in Russian. And the French, the way the French kept... Again, the the Russian aristocrats spoke French, everybody. I mean, I learned that when I read my history. And so, again, not only did she want to be an aristocrat 
or at least wanted you to know what an, an aristocrat was. She actually had designs on you learning French, even though she never did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But the Yiddish words are just give so much flavor to Julie's writing. Drack. The drack. What was the, the, the not jammy, what was the, um, from, frummy. 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 <laughs> I just love those words. They just are. They, they sound like what they mean. Exactly. And it's amazing, too, when you say these Yiddish words. I'm like, I, I'm always surprised by how many Yiddish words I know, but mm-hmm. don't necessarily realize that they were Yiddish. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, um, just that whole, I think, desire to be an aristocrat. It also reminds me of like there are a lot of Korean people. They always say like, oh, yeah, we have royal descendants. So we're from royal blood or our family used to be part of this dynasty or whatever. Mm-hmm. And nobody really believes or cares anymore. But it's it's just funny that that's still it's, something it's that such people... a it's such a human marker. I mean, Nancy, yeah. I'm sure that you can relate. My one of my grandmother, who was 100 percent Irish, insisted on the fact that they were lace curtain Irish. Yes, I'm sure they and, were. And what that meant was they weren't people's maids. That is just such a through line in human experience of Yeah. That that kind of stuff was actually layered pretty in a pretty complex way in her head because communist experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The communist experience and then being Jewish and the self-ascribed identity and then also the identity that was ascribed to Jews, they were excluded. And so she developed this, well, we can't have Russian kitsch, even if it was symbols of her aristocracy. Yeah. And I, and I love this, the scene of her barging into your school <laughs> and demanding that she Come be... Out. Yeah. She's like, do you not realize what she's reading? A and, Frenchman. <laughs> and that Julie could just shut out the world completely by just reading her own books in a classroom where drug deals were going down and God knows what. So she sat at the foot of a master... And so with a book, you can just obliterate anything. The Second City Training Center proudly sponsors the good stuff here at Personal Disclosures. Second City Training Center gives people a chance to have fun, go bold, and find their funny. Whether it's improv to storytelling, or writing to acting, or stand-up to music, you'll find a perfect class at secondcity.com TC. Or if you're just wanting to do what we're doing on this podcast, go to secondcity.com slash online and register. Next up, here's Paul Kim doing a story called Go Home. Paul is Korean-American who grew up in a traditional household. And this small portrait is really a huge picture of how many views he had of his father over the years and how driving in the car one night he he sort of pulls them all together. He was not one to call, ever. Seeing the word dad pop up on the caller ID at 9.30 p.m. was nothing short of alarming. My instincts would not betray me. Your mom is not picking up her phone, he said in Korean. Tell her I'm at the hospital. I had a heart attack. Before I could mine him for any more information, the nurse took the phone from him to make sure I had the correct hospital name and location. 
Fucking language barrier. Driving to the hospital, I became flooded with thoughts. In the back of my mind, I kept telling myself it was not a big deal. He was cogent enough to have had made that phone call, though he did sound like he was struggling to get the words out. Damn nurse. What if that was the last conversation I would ever have with him? What if I was the last loved one he would ever talk to? The gravity of his possible death felt like a burden, only adding to the weight of the dread lingering over my psyche. I always felt like I had time to finally have a breakthrough moment with him, that it was just around the corner. Now time was running out, and the unseized opportunities of the past felt all the more devastating. The feeling of disconnection from my father started at a pretty young age. The prevailing emotion I remember receiving from him was always anger. It was as if my dad did not give himself the luxury of lightheartedness or humor. He was a slave to pragmatism. It would not be until our first family trip to Korea when I was in high school that I observed a sense of humor. I always knew he had a creative energy about him. He liked to paint, woodwork, write poetry. But in our direct interactions, it's like he was always just trying to teach me something. So when he made some phallic references about some legumes in an attempt to make my aunts blush, I think I was the most amused out of anyone. Back home, our family room was where he made his domain. Naturally, it was the room I would come to disdain the most. Aesthetically, it left a lot to be desired. Three out of the four walls had a different type of wallpaper, and there was a corner of the ceiling that perpetually had water spots. Over the years, my father patched the drywall multiple times, only for the stains to reappear. There was also a worn spot on the carpet where he would always sit. Later, he would buy a small rug to put over the worn spot in order to maintain his perch. He also set up the living room as a storage space of sorts. He pushed the coffee table against the wall and stacked it high with all of the snacks he liked to eat while watching TV. When he was feeling generous, he would offer me a king-sized dark chocolate bar from his stack, and it would be one of the about dozen he would hoard when they would go on sale at the drugstore. Mm -hmm. Behind one of the curtains, he hid away a folding table that would magically appear when company came over. Why keep it all the way in the basement when it can be stored up here when we need it? Nobody will notice. I did, and so did everyone else. The corner behind the TV was reserved for paper goods. When anyone would holler that we were out of paper towels or toilet paper, my dad would always yell, Did you check behind the TV? <laughs> the Sisyphean water spots, the food anxiety, the lack of awareness, or the doubling down in spite of it, this was who I always knew my father to be. All of these things observed, nothing ever expressed. When I finally had the chance to talk to him, my father, after the surgery, all he could say was, Chibega, go home. It was his way of releasing me from any burden. He was giving me what he thought I would want, for everything to be okay. What I really wanted was to chase after everything that felt unknowable about him. So I did go home, to his home, and sitting in that family room, I looked up at the water spots on the ceiling, and I felt comforted by them for the first time. Wow. All right. Great. I really, really relate to this story. My dad was a very 
a silent man, a very serious man, a man who kept king-size Hershey bars with peanuts locked up in his work table in the basement. <laughs> Something about those chocolate bars. Yeah. He, had a, he had a monster sweet tooth that was so, it seems like a little bit like your dad, in, yeah. in contrast to the front that he presented to the world of like a very serious man. Mm. Yeah, his sweet tooth is unrivaled. Maybe <laughs> we should compare notes at some point. <laughs> Yeah, my father had a sweet tooth also, and I haven't talked a lot about my father's obsessive-compulsive disorder, but he also had dark chocolate that he would sneak out of the freezer, but his obsessive-compulsive disorder didn't allow him to eat truffles or anything round, and so ch- round chocolate candy, if ever was in the house or brought some by someone in the house, he would have like a meltdown. Like an anger <laughs> meltdown. And so the only thing that were in the freezer that was allowed to be eaten that was dark chocolate was dark chocolate bars that he also bought on sale like Paul's dad. <laughs> well, they would do like 10 for a $10 or something at Jewel or, you know, they would have these deals and he would just go crazy on it these It was deals. never. It, it's so, f- isn't it interesting how like yep. cross-cultural yep. there's still all these same things because again, exactly, my, my father never like treated himself to like the good stuff. It was always like what is the most volume of candy for the dollar? Right. Oh, my father treated himself to the good stuff. Mm-hmm. The Dove, I don't know if you guys remember. Ooh, Dove. Dove Dark oh, yeah. chocolate Fancy. squares, because they weren't round, they were square. But my, my dad would also do this thing where there used to be a hardware chain called Furrows, at least in the Midwest, and that was my dad's Saturday morning project. He was waiting outside the door when the Furrows employees unlocked the door on Saturday <laughs> mornings. And by the time he came home at like 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, I'd be laying on the couch in the living room reading a novel, and he would say, well, lame brain, here you go, <laughs> like, and throw a Mars bar onto my chest, like as if before he left, I had said, dad, dad, please get me a Mars bar for a visit a Mars bar. And that was his undercover way of showing affection. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, my dad would give me the chocolate bars, you know, just because I think that was his way of showing, like, I'm giving you a piece of my stash, a piece of myself mm-hmm. to you. But always I was like, well, I don't want this chocolate bar. I can just buy one of these on my own. <laughs> um, it always felt like such a strange way to me. But I, I know that that's how a lot of people express that they care about you, was yeah. through food. I like that his man cave was the living room. (laughs) Right. He also had his own bathroom. Uh And then my sister, my mom and I, we shared one bathroom. And he had his own. (laughs) I don't know if it's an immigrant thing, but it's someone who probably was used to having a lot less space than he did in the suburban house. And so he was using his old world small space habits in a house that actually had space. Right. I wanted to know what the... Lejeune leads to a penis joke. Yeah, you would. <laughs> I yeah, was what kind glad of legumes? We were spared that. What kind of legumes look like a dick, Paul? <laughs> yeah, um, green beans. No, peanut. <laughs> and how do you say it in Korean? I don't know what the word was. Right. I, I'm sorry. No, I think that's a sign of health. <laughs> <laughs> the point. The point was more that he was making dick jokes, and I. <laughs> 
this was coming from my dad was uh-huh. just so shocking to me at that time because I just, for whatever reason, never assumed that he would ever do such a thing. But I'm like, okay, he's actually a person here. <laughs> this is Julie Bashkin, the executive producer. Anyone can and should do what we're doing here. Visit our website, personaldisclosures.com, to make your own disclosures. We have celebrity comedians and best-selling authors who will work with you individually. Whether you're an experienced writer or have never attempted to do this in your life, we can make you funny, smart, and interesting on paper. And now, some more provocative stories. Next up on the parents' trail of tears is Jessica Vitkin talking about her dad. God bless him. What a man. What a life. And when she read this, I remember in class, we were just like pounding the table. You know, it was like it made you ache to think about having a dad that like walked around and looked a little threadbare and homeless. And But this rewrite, it's like, she shows us the magnitude of this person and the historical moment that he comes into life. This is Elegant Sweatpants. <laughs> my sister and I have plans to write a book about my father one day. He's the kind of man a book should be written about. We're still workshopping titles. One favorite is Elegant Sweatpants. The title comes from our father's favorite pair of dark green dress sweatpants, which he often pairs with an oversized blue Hawaiian shirt and wears to many special occasions, including graduations and engagement parties. The elegant sweatpants, like many of his clothes, are too big for him and bordering on threadbare. It's hobo chic without being chic. Once during the holidays, the whole family volunteered serving meals at a homeless shelter. My dad wandered over to a spread of food that had been laid out and began picking at it. One of the shelter employees asked him if he needed help with anything. He told her he was volunteering. I'm not sure that she believed him. He was wearing the elegant sweatpants the day he was mistaken for a homeless man. His accent is thick. Having moved to the U.S. at 30 years old, he missed the deadline to apply for complete and total language fluency. Every now and then, he comes across an English word that he's never heard of. This happened with the word anus. I was in my 20s, my father in his 60s, and he saw the word written out and asked how it was pronounced. Anus. It's pronounced anus, I replied. And what does it mean? That's your asshole, Dad. Anus is like like the medical term for your butthole. Taking in that information, he began to practice saying this new word like any good language student would letting the word roll around his mouth and come out in various intonations and inflections. Anus. 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 My dad was born in British Palestine the year before the plot of land was renamed Israel. He grew up on a kibbutz, a kind of socialist experiment of a society. A utopian ideal, a kibbutz is a small collective community where everyone was supposed to be considered equal, no matter who they were or what they did. Money was not necessary for the kibbutz society to survive, as everyone was working together to ensure that everyone could live and thrive. Everything was done for the good of the collective group, and everything was done together, including the raising of the children. Buildings in the center of the kibbutz were called the children's homes, and they were just that, the homes for the children. The kids were not raised directly by their parents. 
Rather, the entirety of the kibbutz raised them. The bond between parent and child was never fully established, and their peers in the children's home essentially became their immediate family members, caretakers, and examples of how to behave. My dad didn't always dress like a homeless man. For a number of years, my dad was a world-class athlete in a desert country. This led to a lot of outfits that consisted of only sandals and scandalously short, cut-off denim shorts. I've seen the pictures. My dad was hot. With a ridiculously toned and tan body, a giant Jufro that had a surface area similar to that of Saturn, and a beard that just wouldn't quit, my dad was a poster boy for the hippie utopian ideal of what a child of the kibbutz should look like. The kibbutz is, in essence, a small rural town, like any other small rural town in any other country, except for the communist, socialist, and Zionist principles that inform their way of life there. There are both advantages and disadvantages to growing up in a small town, and the kibbutz is no different. In a small town, you're often given a label, and it can be hard to peel that label off. If you're the town troublemaker, you'll always be the town troublemaker. My dad was given the label of jock. He was an athlete, and an amazing athlete at that, but he couldn't be anything more than that. As this was a socialist society, everybody was considered equal. You could not be better than someone else, even if, in fact, you were better than them. My father was a long jumper for a long time. He held multiple Israeli national titles. He trained at the most elite athletic center in the country. He was put on track to compete in the Olympics. But this did not matter in the kibbutz. He was no better than anyone else. He was not special. He was only an athlete. He was not encouraged to indulge his love of literature and poetry. Rather, he was reminded of his place in the society and how that did not make him more than anyone else. A life lived he certainly had. He's fought in two wars, competed at the top level of sport, traveled the world, and in essence, realized the American dream. Yet to see him now as a 70-year-old, not actually homeless, but dresses like he is, I can imagine it would be difficult to guess he's lived this life. Guess that he crossed the Berlin Wall while it still stood tall and proud. Guess that he is a member of the first generation to be raised in modern-day Israel. Or guess that he came to America with a couple hundred dollars and little to no English, yet he managed to earn a master's degree and create a rich and full life for himself and his family. The man he presents as today is by no means an accurate representation of who he is or the life he's led, yet he continues to walk around in oversized, rumpled old clothes. Because that's how it's done on the kibbutz. In those early Halcyon socialist days, you wore something until you could absolutely no longer wear it anymore. You did not put on airs and dress above your rank. You dressed simply and modestly like everybody else. And so he continues to do just that. Because like that old saying goes, you can forcibly remove the elegant sweatpants from the boy, but you can't stop him from picking them out of the trash and putting them back on again. <laughs> what a guy. Oh my God, don't you just love him? I mean... I love how much she loves him mm -hmm. and, and how easily she creates the complexity of his mind and body and status and, you know, orientation. What a guy. It's kind of what we were talking about before, about when you first start to see your parent as a whole individual human person that exists outside of your own existence. And she obviously 
has that sense fully about her father. She, it's obvious that she's fascinated by his life and his experiences. I think what she's saying is most people won't. We'll see him today in his sweatpants at the helping out at the homeless center and not realize what an impressive, amazing guy he is. And maybe only she knows that now. And an, an interesting contrast on that point with Julie's story, where her mom was looking for ways to, you know, uh, right. be a part of the upper class, where he's looking for a way to maintain as a classless type right. society. I, I don't know about about this, what I'm about to say, but I, I keep thinking the longer I live, the more power is not visible. I think real power is under the radar. Mm. I may be... F- fooling myself, but I see so many symbols of status with cars or houses or whatever, and I think about what those things cost and how much hard work goes into acquiring those kinds of status symbols. And I don't, I can't say I don't care about money, but I certainly, I don't care about how things look as much as I used to. I care more about who I am and how I feel. And it's like, this guy knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And he was like full of confidence, as you could imagine a, a world-class athlete would be. And I'm sure her mother snatched him up like <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the morning mm-hmm. in his little short shorts. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that as someone whose father was hot. (laughs) The other theme of the story to me is how really everybody is interesting. He just seems like some old 70s guys in sweatpants, and yet he has this really interesting life and background. Paul's dad has this extremely interesting life, has lived through a lot, a couple wars, in a culture that's completely different than the culture he's in now. Julie's mother fascinating complex mix of jewish culture and soviet culture and russian 19th century culture i find my parents fascinating my my dad was a military pilot in the height of the cold war he was off at an alert shack when the tanks rolled into berlin and my mom was home with four little children but we all live in history. Mm-hmm. It's all interesting. <laughs> well, to quote Nancy, people are a pain in the ass and they'll bore you to death if you let them. But the pages mediate and on paper, everyone is interesting. What a genius. I what a gem. What a gem. What a good student. <laughs> Brown noser. Yeah. <laughs> it's working. It's working wow. for me. Yeah, it's more like, I think it's more brainwashing wow. than brown nosing. <laughs> The Second City Training Center proudly sponsors the good stuff of personal disclosures. The Second City Training Center gives people a chance to have fun, go bold, and find their funny. If you're not near a training center, then go to secondcity.com online and you can register. This podcast was created by me, Julie Bashkin, in partnership with Alana Kipp and Nancy Beckett and the Second City Training Center. Sound engineering, recording, and original music scores created by Gravity Studios in Chicago. Visit personaldisclosures.com 
for tips and tricks on how to make your own personal disclosures and to access exclusive personal training and group events with famous best-selling authors and comedians you've seen on TV. Make sure to follow us on Instagram where you may find embarrassing vintage photos from our youth. And please, share with your friends and leave a review on Stitcher and iTunes. It helps us out tremendously to get the word out and to bring you more laughs and maybe even some tears every week with new episodes.